We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, but how often do we stop scrolling and just listen? I'm Malika Bilal, and starting May 1st, The Take will be a daily news podcast, bringing you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Al Jazeera Podcast. Two weeks of violence have plunged Sudan into turmoil. Hundreds of people have been killed and tens of thousands have fled. The country is home to more than 500 ethnic groups and is rich in natural resources. Are these factors linked to the conflict? I'm Tom McRae and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Okay, joining me now are our guests in Montreal, Khalid Madani, Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies and Chairman of the African Studies Programme at McGill University. In Cairo, Raja Makawi, Editor of Africa Arguments, a platform for news, investigation and opinion and author of Sudan's Unfinished Democracy. And here in Doha, we have Walid Madibo, the founder and president of the Sudan Policy Forum. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Raja, if I can begin with you, you've just arrived in Egypt after fleeing Sudan. Can you just give us a brief explanation of how difficult that journey was and and, uh, how hard it was to to escape Sudan? It's it's very, very difficult. Um, The reality is that Sudan, uh, or people living in Khartoum, who've been kind of um, under threat of uh, conflict and bombardment for the last um, 15 days or so, are all scrambling to leave uh, Sudan through the, um, you know, through the route they know most and which they're familiar with, with, which is Egypt. So you've got thousands and thousands of people who are on the same route, taking the same, on the same road, taking the same route towards the same kind of um, uh, crossing points. Uh, the situation at the border is 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 very kind of um, uh, difficult and protracted. Um, um, the crossing point itself, Argin, is um, um, it's it's not um, a human kind of you know a crossing point. It's a cargo one, so it's not right. set up uh, to receive thousands and thousands of people every day. So um, you've got a situation where people have been kind of squatting for weeks now. I mean, it took me a week to get through uh, with almost no access to um, any basic um, uh, services that people need to maintain themselves. Um, Food is very, I mean, there's no food and water. Mm. Um, um, I mean, there are no bathrooms. Um, The security situation itself is quite dire. Um, and, you know, the state itself, on at least on the Sudan side, is not, I mean, access to information in order to give you uh, updates on what you need to do in order to get out is, um, is not at the level that is required to help people move on in a, yeah. in a straightforward and easy manner. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine um, the difficulties that you and, and the tens and tens of thousands of other Sudanese have had to go through just to, to, to get to safety. But we are extremely grateful that you and your family are safe at this point in time. Uh, Khaled, I'd like to um, talk to you a little bit about ethnic divisions uh, in Sudan and, and how that might have played a role in the lead up um, to this conflict. I mean, 
Is this simply a war between two generals basically vying for, for power and influence themselves, or do you think that there are deeper ethnic divisions to this conflict? Um, well, I would say that it is not so much ethnic, but a political crisis, um, of course, reflected in the competition, political and military competition between these two generals. But I think the notion that this is an ethnic conflict is uh, something that's uh, oftentimes, um, you know, uh, not uh, correct. There is no correlation in Africa or Sudan, frankly, if you don't mind me saying, uh, between the density and the number of ethnic groups and, um, uh, and uh, conflict. Um, and so as, as easy it is it, it, as it is to say and reduce this conflict to inter-ethnic conflict, it's, it's just not the case. Um, I would suggest, and uh, my guests, of course, can chime in, that uh, historically uh, the issue in Sudan is an imbalance between the center and the periphery. Uh, that actually gives us a much more, more a better understanding, not only of the present conflict, but also uh, the decades, really, and particularly the last 30 years uh, under the rule of Ahmed Bashir, in which the primary investment uh, of the country, of course, upwards of 60 percent of the national budget under Bashir went into the military. The remaining went into um, and a very kind of limited geographical triangle um, um, around Khartoum, around the uh, River Rim area. Um, specifically uh, Dongola, Al-Ubaid, and Sinad, that uh, Sudanese know uh, full well. And that really had to do with the concentration of power at the state, uh, at the level of the center of the state that dates back to the colonial era. Uh, understanding it that way, that is the conflict, a historical one between center and periphery, can help you understand the conflict between, um, you know, the national army, of course, that is uh, manned by uh, many from the central part of the country, um, and Hemeti himself uh, from the so-called periphery, but who does not necessarily represent in fact, he does not represent the majority of Darfurians, as you can imagine. In addition to that, that kind of lens of looking at it from center and periphery vantage point also helps us understand the, the issue and conflict in eastern Sudan, as an example, a very marginalized culturally and politically and economically, historically, and what we call the two areas of, uh, of southern Kurdufan and the Blue Nile. Um, understanding it between as a history, a long history of imbalance uh, between center and periphery, both in terms of, uh, um, you know, the absence of representation um, in terms of those in the margins, but also uh, the absence of economic investment and infrastructural investment is really important. I want to conclude that my answer by saying, actually, we also have to understand demographic change. Khartoum itself, the greater Khartoum area, which, you know, I think houses approximately maybe seven to eight million. I need to check that number, is actually extremely diverse. It's not the Khartoum mm. of the 1950s and 60s. It's a Khartoum that encompasses all of the different ethnic groups. In other words, uh, the battle between these two generals is not hitting one uh, specific ethnic group uh, and another. It is hitting all of the ethnic groups uh, from in the entire country, all of whom have families and relatives in the greater Khartoum area. And I think that's really important to emphasize. Yeah. Well, Eid, what do you make of um, Khaled's points there? I think it's very well uh, said and well put. I just need to add uh, some important uh, uh, points here. There are three levels to this conflict. There is the conflict, uh, conflictual uh, uh, issue, a uh, personality issue between Burhan and Himeti. And there is, uh, and, and at this level, we would have to uh, remember that Himeti was was used by al-Bashir to uh, against the army and uh, uh, and the Islamists uh, used him as 
uh, as, as, as a paramilitary force that they could use any time there is a coup d'etat in Khartoum. So there is this level, and there is the second level, which is the, the dynamics, the internal dynamics between the RSF and the Islamist groups, because we have to remember that the Islamists, uh, they, they, they have gotten rid from starting 1989, they started getting rid of the uh, professional officers, and they started ideologizing the army itself. And uh, uh, gradually, they moved all the uh, defense uh, the defense duties to the uh, intelligence uh, department, mm -hmm. and when the, uh, the civil war erupted in Darfur, they, they they used the RSF, which was at that time Haras al-Hudud. Uh, so there is there is this dynamics uh, at the second level. At the third level, we have to remember very well that the social basis from which uh, General Hamidi has been recruiting uh, his forces are areas uh, of Darfur and inside Darfur, mainly uh, uh, the Arab tribes. Uh, it's only recently that he has started incorporating some indigenously African tribes. So uh, the, the question is, uh, these—I mean, ironically, these are the areas that are mostly rich in Sudan. I mean, if you think about what the professor has just said, uh, I can just add to it that they— in order to, uh, to, to, to grow agriculture in the Sahara Desert of northern Sudan, you need $4,000 per fadan, compared mm -hmm. to only $134 in Darfur or Kurdufan. So we, we need to think about uh, marginalization, about center uh, periphery uh, dynamics, but we can't ignore the fact that there is a historical tension between, from the time of the Mahdiya between the people of Western Sudan and the people of uh, the center here, uh, people who have, okay. who have dominated the politics for almost 70 years. Yeah. Uh, um, the Doctors' Union has just put out a statement saying that at least 74 people have been killed in West Darfur and uh, that locals uh, there are now beginning to arm themselves, believing that the conflict is inevitably going to reignite ethnic violence in the area. I mean, how alarming is that, Raja, do you think? And, and, and do you think that that is what is going to happen? I mean, it's quite alarming. Darfur has had a, a long, long history of um, uh, uh, conflict uh, whose patterns are kind of, you know, shaped by the politics in the center, again, to, re to reiterate uh, um, uh, Dr. Khaled's point about kind of, you know, the center uh, periphery kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, framework or lens of, of trying to understand uh, how how Sudan functions. But I think it's also very important to kind of look beyond the idea of, ethnic, of ethnicity as just um, a racial marker. Um, in Sudan, ethnicity is a political construct, one that's been concocted and driven by the state uh, with the purpose of consolidating its power. Um, uh, a central state that's quite weak whose reach is um, is very limited, have sought to use um, certain kind of ethnic groups in certain parts of the country to try and kind of, you know, uh, uh, manage and consolidate power. Uh, when I think of ethnicity, that's what I think of, uh, okay. not, you know, people's social markers, yeah. Yeah. Khaled, 
I mean, is the worry now that both the army and uh, the rapid support forces are basically going to recruit different groups, recruit dif different ethnic minorities, basically to, to fight one another on their behalf? Is that what you think could happen? Um, um, I... Um, I think that that attempt, uh, since the, uh, the, the, uh, the period of Umar Bashir, that injection of, uh, of inter-ethnic hatred and even uh, racism on the part of B Bashir uh, that he used not only to help to execute his proxy war in, in that form, but also to put down uh, the revolution, the pro-democracy forces, the, uh, if you may recall at the beginning of the uprisings in uh, December 2018 and, and, and early 2019, uh, he accused uh, the protesters of being from that for. Interestingly enough, um, that was uh, when the slogan uh, um, where all uh, from that four really emerged as a popular one. I think, uh, frankly, in Khartoum itself, um, if not elsewhere, there is a clear recognition that uh, this is a political crisis and a political competition between two generals representing their own interest and the interest of a small group of allies. In the case of General Burhan, of course, uh, former members of the National Congress Party. In the case of Hemeti, a small group of uh, of uh, militia. I know that the number is large, but these are paid, and this is what we mean by uh, mercenaries. They're not actually mm. recruited on the basis of ideology or ethnicity. They're recruited as a result of money being paid. And so I think that generally the Sudanese people absolutely understand that this is not one of inter-ethnic conflict. In fact, that has been tried in the past, and Sudanese are fully aware, and you can see that in Khartoum. I don't see that that is actually going to work. That doesn't mean it, the, the violence uh, will diminish or it will be uh, a little bit easier. These are very strong forces. I want to also add to uh, um, uh, Dr. Raga's uh, point in terms of uh, how ethnicity plays out in Sudan. I visited uh, that for many times, even during the war. And I want to really be very clear. The notion of Arabs versus Africans in Darfur, which is so uh, popular and so easy as a marker, uh, from our experience and actually, you know, uh, personal and also uh, in other ways in terms of research as well, uh, it is really linguistic markers in Darfur that count. In, and in addition to that, issues of economic livelihoods. There is no other way to uh, understand the history of uh, intermarriage. Uh, I can tell you a number of different anecdotes when I was there in terms of the relationships between the different uh, ethnic groups that uh, identify based on their linguistic markers, either either originally for or Zarawa or, or Arabic language. So the issue okay. of the pastoralist versus, uh, you know, non-pastoralist agriculturalist is really the primary way that Foreigns define themselves. It's important because that's the only way we can understand issues of conflict resolution, which are going, are going to be so important. OK, I, I want to move on to um, Sudan's natural resources, of course, which uh, it has in abundance. There's gold, productive farmland, oil, um, all these things we mentioned in the story at the beginning of the programme, and, of course, the resources that the Nile and the Red Sea coastline um, throw up as well. Waleed, obviously there's huge foreign interests in Sudan, and there have been for, for many, many years. How is that impacting this current conflict, do you think? Uh, before answering that question, I would want to uh, highlight something very, very, very quickly. I mean, uh, if we look at the conflict from an anthropological or sociological uh, uh, perspective, then what the professor has said is absolutely right. But if we look at it from the political perspective that the, the government, the Islamist group, has ethnicized politics and politicized ethnicity, then we, we look, when we look at the IDPs, we find 2.5 
1.5 million from strictly indigenous African population, basically Masalit, Fort, Tunjur, Daju, uh, Zagawa. So here is where the conflict takes uh, some sort of uh, uh, an ethnic tilt. But to go back to your question, mm. uh, which is very important, uh, Wagner now with uh, uh, General Himeti, they are doing explorations in in uh, southern Darfur in the areas of uh, Sangu and Radom. Uh, they, they, they have a very big uh, plot of land uh, from which they are exploring gold and embezzling it to uh, UAE or Russia. And that represents uh, almost 77 percent of Sudan's export of gold. So here, if we look at the issue of gold, it's a, it's a very sensitive issue. You do have uranium in uh, Jibal al-Nuba, or uh, I would say in uh, uh, Nil al-Azraq, uh, some parts of Janub Kurdufan. So uh, the, the, that what makes the conflict uh, a little bit dirty is, is the fact that the resources are in the areas that are mostly uh, conflictual uh, ethnicity-wise. I mean, the way that the Islamists have driven uh, the conflict uh, has made it very uh, difficult to separate the, the issue of ethnicity from the issue of uh, resources. You think, mm. If we think of Jabal Amir, uh, from which Himeti uh, has been exploring gold for years, uh, that belongs to a certain uh, tribe, I mean, quote-unquote, Bani uh, Hussein, that were driven away by uh, some uh, Rizegad groups, and then later uh, the, the Islamists, or basically Umar al-Bashir, they subdivided the Rizegad into Mahriya and Mahamid. So uh, they have played a very devilish uh, uh, role in uh, separating the ethnicities in uh, Darfur and uh, more importantly, more grievously linking it to the issue of uh, resources. Mm. Raja, obviously Egypt has a huge stake in, in what happens in Sudan, not least because there's tens of thousands of people like yourself and your family that are, that are trying to flee Sudan and, and get into Egypt. What is uh, its interest uh, there at this point in time? And, and where, if any, does President Sisi's allegiance lie? To, to which side? I mean, um, Sudan used to be part of Egypt um, until independence. Um, and I think the ties are not just, you know, um, historically mm. social, with communities kind of intertwined through marriage and, you know, um, right, to, right to move and work and, and whatnot. Uh, but also the political system, Sudan's political system builds to a large degree on uh, kind of the, the, the historical institutions that it, that it had uh, inherited from its time being under, from the time it was a condominium and, and being under the protector, a protectorate of Egypt of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of, you know, translated in the more recent periods of uh, kind of, you know, a, a problematic political relationship uh, between, uh, um, you know, the two uh, military elites. Um, uh, Egypt, you know, uh, the, the kind of, you know, system, political system, uh, and governance system it has in place um, mm. is relies to a large degree on uh, kind of you know securing its south, southern southern border, and also securing kind of an acquisition of um, okay. um, Sudan's military elites as well. So yeah. the two systems basically build on each other. Yeah, uh, Halid, 
I mean, who's backing who here and, and why do you think? Which countries are, are backing the army and which are backing the rapid support forces at this point in time? And, and how much influence do they have over both of those sides? Uh, well, I think in the case of Egypt, it's very well known that in general, uh, uh, Egypt is backing uh, Burhan um, as an individual, uh, even if uh, they are opposed to uh, the remnants or rather the, the Islamist uh, uh, former members of the National Congress Party, because obviously Egypt is, uh, is um, you know, opposed to their Islamist movements in Egypt and in the region. Uh, nevertheless, this is a marriage of convenience. Um, Egypt uh, has always wanted a reliable, from their perspective, stable ally. The relationship between Burhan and Sisi uh, is close. Egypt wants that not only for um, strategic reasons, but also for um, economic uh, reasons as well. And of course, the concern for them at the moment is are the Nile waters and their competition and conflict with Ethiopia. And that, of course, for Egypt is an existential uh, kind of issue. So the relationship uh, with uh, Burhan, they're counting on, and I'm not sure that that's actually a good calculation, uh, that somehow that they could have a complete influence um, over him uh, without having to deal with uh, Islamists of the National Congress Party, many of whom have been released from prison over the last three days, for example. So I think that Egypt is finding itself in a difficult situation in, in that respect. I think historically, as you know, the United Arab Emirates uh, has assisted and supported uh, Himeti first in 2015, when uh, they utilized him as well as Burhan to send mercenaries to the war in Yemen. Um, and of course, uh, they have uh, interest and have had in terms of the gold trade. There's no uh, question there. That's not a secret. I do think calculations have changed. The end of the war in Yemen, I think the participation of the UAE and Saudi Arabia in the Quad uh, to uh, over the framework agreement uh, signals a change in strategic kind of perspectives uh, having to do with the fact that instability is something that the UAE, of course, uh, and their ally, uh, Saudi Arabia, is concerned about uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, their interest in the Red Sea area. And, um, and that's why they entered into negotiations. That's really important. The issue of Wagner and Russia oftentimes is over-sensationalized. I don't believe that Russia has as much influence. Um, and I think that my guest uh, can have uh, perhaps different opinions. I do think that uh, the relationship between Gold and uh, the Wagner Group and and Hemeti is important. I don't think it's uh -huh. the most important. Hemeti has a, a wealth of other resources, uh, and that's really important. All of that is to say that uh, there are changes in the strategic calculations at the moment. I feel with the, the expansion of this conflict and and the way that it's threatening uh, the kind of um, strategic interest of all of these actors that had found these their clients in Sudan previously reliable has uh, will leave them from my perspective. And I'd like to hear what the guests here, my colleagues yeah. say. Uh, we'll have to lead them to actually uh, try to do what they can to stabilize the situation, at least in terms of cessation of hostilities. And already okay. we're seeing this statements about the political settlements from these actors. Yeah, we're, we're, we're rapidly running out of time. Um, Raja, I, I want to, to finish with you. Uh, how, how does this conflict end? And, and how soon do you, do you think or hope you'll be able to return to Sudan? Um, I'm, I'm hoping so. I mean, my family, like many other families, their lives are in Sudan, um, their houses, and that's where their children go to school. And most of us are, even if we live as diasporas, we are connected um, to Sudan in many ways. We, we travel um, yearly once or twice, I mean, more than once. Um, so yes, I, I, I mean, I, I don't see like, a, I'm hoping that the conflict would cease because there is no kind of tangible, long-term um, kind of um, conducive um, alternative 
Um, otherwise, um, we're talking about again um, um, a migration crisis. Uh, mm. How how are, how are people of my parents' generation supposed to kind of exit and leave the country when you know in their seventies? How are they supposed to kind of resettle? Um, so all these questions definitely, sorry, all of these issues of, of definitely kind of raises concerns about the need for hostility to end and for people to be able to make um, safe passage back to their homes and their lives. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, um, unfortunately. But thank you very much, uh, all three of you, uh, for joining us. Khalid Madani, Raja Makawi and Walid Madibo, thank you very much for joining us. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Nihad Al-Abidi, Abla Klaar and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Yara Atala. The programme was edited by Andre Oosthuizen, Lynn Nguyen and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Monday for our next edition. Thank you.